0: Hello everybody and welcome to the first ever episode of Stat Dose of EDU.
1: I'm Christian Chennai And I'm Wai Chung Se, and we're both finally year medical students from Monash University.
0: As a disclaimer, the stat dose of EDU podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely our own and do not reflect those of our affiliated institutions. Now, why Chung? Please tell the audience why it is that they need another
1: MedEd podcast in their life. We provide education that is engaging, vertically integrated, and memorable, targeted at med students. We invite you to join us as we peer into the minds of experienced clinicians to explore their thought process in clinical reasoning and gain pearls of wisdom our esteemed guests wish they knew as medical students and junior doctors. Now, Christian, let's jump right into the case. With great
0: pleasure. This is the case of a 56-year-old female with chest pain and dyspnea. You are the ED registrar in Resus, and the ED is eerily quiet. Suddenly, a patient arrives, brought in by ambulance, with worsening chest pain, dyspnea, and peripheral edema. You rush to receive a handover from Ambulance Victoria.
1: Hey, doctor. I'm Jim from uh, Ambulance Victoria. We've just got Mandy, a 56-year-old female with known coronary artery disease and a recent AMI, who's had two days of progressively worsening shortness of breath, And a new central tightness happening this morning, which has also been progressively worsening. Now, her chest pain is now 5 out of 10, and in addition to that, over the past two days, she'd had trouble getting her socks and shoes on in the morning, and she noticed that her feet are more swollen than usual. Now, in terms of that recent MI, Mandy's had a myocardial infarction two weeks ago, which was managed by percutaneous coronary intervention, with a drug-eluting stent, and she's been taking aspirin, clopidogrel, lisinopril, and rosuvastatin, and she was discharged home from hospital eight days ago. She also has high blood pressure and reflux. All right, Wai Chung, I think it's time to introduce our esteemed guest to the podcast. That's right. We're very lucky to have one of our original third-year tutors and mentor and friend that we've known for quite some time now.
2: Uh, G'day. Um, my name's Jimmy, uh, or formerly known as James Fay. I'm a humble general medicine registrar at Eastern Health. I'm currently preparing for my basic physician training exams. I've done my written and my clinical exam is in the next two months. I'm a Monash University graduate, I'm PGY-5 this year Um, I'm quite keen on cardiology and that will be the goal to apply after I complete my clinical exam. Outside of medicine, I'm a proud jiu-jitsu white belt um, and an avid Hawks football supporter. You go and interview Mandy to
0: gain some more history. In addition to confirming what was stated by Ambulance Victoria in Handover, you also gain a medications, family, and social history. In terms of her medications history, she currently takes aspirin, clopidogrel, lisinopril, atenolol, rosuvastatin, and a vitamin D supplement. She smoked 10 cigarettes a day until her myocardial infarction two weeks ago, and has since decided to quit smoking and she occasionally consumes small quantities of alcohol. She consumes no other recreational substances, and has no known drug allergies. In terms of her family history, there is a family history of cardiovascular disease, particularly ischemic heart disease, but she has no other significant family history that she is aware of, and has no children. In terms of her social history, Mandy lives at home with her husband, and is fully independent at baseline. Alright audience, Now is the time where we ask you to consider what are your differentials with the available information? Then we invite you to compare your thoughts with those of our expert discussant Jimmy and see how they measure up.
2: My differentials for this case would probably be an AMI. There would be pericarditis or pericardial effusion, such as Dressler's syndrome, which is kind of the, the age range that she's in. Mm. And that's essentially kind of a pericardia, pericarditis and pericardial effusion, which is kind of two weeks post. And there's a little bit of a autoimmune component to that, autoinflammatory. And mm. um, some other differentials... Um, a pulmonary embolism, dissection, and kind of early ischemic cardiomyopathy with a peripheral edema.
1: We also asked Jimmy to present his one-liner as though he was presenting to a consultant or a fellow colleague. Now we'd invite you to pause and think about how you'd present this one-liner.
2: 56 year old female, independent from home, who's presented with chest pain and dyspnea for investigation uh, in the context of an acute myocardial infarction uh, requiring percutaneous coronary intervention two weeks ago. We asked Jimmy what he would like to do
0: next and top of that list was that he would like to examine the patient. So let's go see what the examination revealed.
1: Mandy's examination was notable for a systolic murmur best heard at the apex with radiation to the axilla. And as the assiduous ED registrar you are, you hear a third heart sound as well and a displaced apex beat.
0: Hmm, interesting exam findings, Wai Chung. Well, let's see how it changed Jimmy's perspective on the case.
2: In a patient who's post-MI with a new systolic murmur, I'm thinking it could be papillary muscle dysfunction. So um, when you've got an MI, you can get infarction of the LV wall and you can get like papillary muscle, muscle rupture um, and mitral regurgitation. Mm-hmm. So that's a differential there. And that could present with uh, like a decompensated heart failure picture like she has now mm-hmm. and would could explain her symptoms. Um, with a displaced apex beat, usually that tends to be in patients that have had more long standing mitral regurgitation, because you get LV dilatation over time and, dis- and LV failure, which lead- and the de- LV dilatation leads to the-, the cardiomegaly and the displaced apex beat. Another, another differential here could be, if she's extremely hypotensive and looking extremely unwell, you can get LV free wall rupture as well. And cardiac tamponade, so the blood just leaks into the pericardial sac, mm. or you can get septal rupture, which sounds like a ventricular septal defect, which is kind of a harsh pansystolic murmur. Mm. 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 Um, and yeah.
1: how would you differentiate mitral regurgitation from like a pansystolic murmur in our patient here? And
2: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, so a mitral regurgitation murmur is it's a pansystolic murmur. It's loudest at the apex, it tends to be louder on expiration, in the left lateral position and it tends to radiate to the axilla. An S3 heart sound can be due to fluid overload, which we might expect with her. And if mitral regurgitation, usually when it's a bit more long-standing, you can get displaced apex beat from LV dilatation and failure. Hmm. And a papillary muscle dysfunction, which you can get post-MI, can be a cause of mitral regurgitation.
0: Now, Jimmy ordered a slew of investigations, and we won't go through all of them. But importantly, in a patient presenting with chest pain and a recent MI, as well as plenty of cardiac risk factors, it's important to order an ECG and troponins. Now, the ECG for this patient did show ST elevation in the anterior leads and a very high troponin. So with that in mind, Jimmy was very ready to send this patient to the cath lab for urgent PCI and was pretty certain that this patient was probably having what is known as stent thrombosis. But he hadn't yet discounted many of the other complications that can happen post-MI. And for that reason, he was requesting one more investigation to happen, as long as it was available and didn't delay CT angio and PCI.
2: While... Someone's contacting the cath lab, we should do a point of care ultrasound to see if we can better visualize.
1: So, based on our discussion with Jimmy, it sounds like he's presented a couple differentials from a post MI complication perspective.
0: Indeed. So, so far we've heard about the possibility of a new myocardial infarction, which Mm. could happen in a number of ways. Yeah. One way would be what's known as stent thrombosis, Mm -hmm. where a new thrombus forms at the site where the PCI occurred. So yeah. where the stent is currently. Yeah. And Jimmy also mentioned that if a patient has extensive atherosclerosis of the coronary arteries, then it's not outside the realms of possibility that they have another plaque rupture mm. in a different territory and have an AMI that way as well.
1: Yeah. Do you have a way of contextualizing or breaking down complications post-MI?
0: So one of the ways that uh, I've been thinking about lately, uh, as we were studying for making yeah. this little segment, is I was thinking maybe we could divide the complications of MI into structural causes, mm-hmm. then uh, thrombosis, mm-hmm. electrical, mm-hmm. and then uh, just weird things mm-hmm. outside. Yeah, of those weird things. and wonderful ones, yeah. Indeed. So you got the structural, electrical,
1: thrombotic, and other. Mm. Great. So shall we go through a few of those, y Chung? Yeah. So you've got your stent thrombosis, you've got um, thrombosis of other coronary arteries. Besides thrombotic
0: problems, we can also have electrical problems. And these are especially common shortly after having Mm -hmm. an MI, so in the acute phase. And uh, the most important of these would be Uh, arrhythmias such as ventricular fibrillation and ventricular tachycardia
1: and that can happen pretty early on like you said in um, your post mi phase and so now we've talked about your thrombotic causes and your arrhythmogenic causes now let's move to the structural causes
0: yep so structural complications of mi there's many many of them and ultimately they all boil down to something broke Mm. So uh, one of the things that can break is the papillary muscle. Recall, the papillary muscle is one of the muscles in the left ventricle. It's Mm. a little string of
1: muscle that attaches to the leaflets of the mitral valve. So there's also interventricular septal defect as a result of um, an acute VSD. And there's also ventricular free wall rupture, which can manifest with cardiac tamponade, which is another reason why Jimmy was really keen on asking for vital signs. And then finally, there's the ventricular pseudoaneurysm, or true ventricular aneurysm.
0: Yeah, those ones are kind of weird and rare. A ventricular pseudoaneurysm occurs when the myocardium has a hole in it, but the pericardium remains intact, and the result is that you get uh, essentially a sack of blood Uh, forming in the pericardium but it makes uh, like an outpouching rather than causing a true tamponade in a ventricular aneurysm uh, you actually have weakness of all of the layers of myocardium as well as pericardium so you have a true outpouching of myocardium rather than a hole in the Mm. myocardium and then finally we've got our weird and wonderful which is So uh, this is one of my favorite ones, Dressler pericarditis. It's just a fun name to say. You sound very smart. Uh, But Dressler pericarditis, can't say I've ever seen it. It's an autoimmune reaction that happens generally a couple weeks after MI. Uh, and it can cause inflammation of that uh, pericardium that surrounds the, the heart. Uh, so this could present with signs of pericarditis, so pleuritic chest pain, maybe a friction rub on auscultation. And you've also
1: got your you know diffuse ECG changes that's consistent with your pericarditis mm. with anything else.
0: Exactly. So that one's a pretty wacky one. Importantly, we can see that there are clear categories under which these complications fall so for instance uh, with electrical problems with the heart we would easily be able to detect these with an ECG
1: Mm. and I mean with with this narrow window as to how these um, arrhythmias can occur a lot of the times as Jimmy said um, patients would be on telemetry and what telemetry is is just having cardiac monitoring where um, the ward can sort of monitor whether there's any runs of arrhythmias Mm -hmm. so an
0: ecg or telemetry can identify uh, arrhythmias as they occur which is often early in the course Mm. post-mi then we can see that there's a series of these structural defects and how might we identify those
1: because it's structural one of the best ways of approaching or finding out whether there's any structural complications is by imaging and um, ultrasound currently is the I guess the fastest and the most efficient way to image um, the heart be it through um, the chest so putting jelly on the chest and um, imaging the heart or through the esophagus so these two are abbreviated as a TTE trans echo and TOE or TEE depending on where you are in the world <laughs> you got the um trans echocardiogram
0: yeah so echocardiogram is good for those structural defects
1: you've got your um rethrombosis yes so for rethrombosis mainly through ecg mm-hmm. and then your weird and wonderful which is the main thing is Dresler, mm-hmm. which can also be th- found through ECG. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's a clear theme as to like getting the most bang for your buck in terms of screening for this. So Jimmy asked for an ECG. He's also interestingly asked for an echocardiogram as well before um, they go up for a cardiac catheterization. Mm-hmm. So should we move on to see what Jimmy's findings on echo are? Let's do
2: it. So this is a four-chamber view um, of the heart, and we can see essentially a left ventricular aneurysm and, and just kind of a massive outpouching mm. at the LV apex. Uh, yeah, it essentially just represents the, the cause of her symptoms today. Right. So, yeah, this is another complication of myocardial infarction Mm. though pretty rare Mm. this will need management at a cardiothoracic center right so she'll have to be transferred the main reason is the signs of decompensation that she has Mm. so if you came in with just an ami you might have central chest pain the ecg changes but she's also come in with peripheral edema On our examination we've got a new systolic murmur, got a displaced apex beat, significant pitting edema, as you've described. So we need to do our echocardiogram to see why she's having this decompensation. Um, And we had our differentials. There was the papillary muscle dysfunction, mitral regurgitation. There was LV structural damage we had as a differential, like free wall rupture. And this is LV aneurysm, another structural problem.
0: Would patients like this who present with new chest pain would they get an echo kind of as the rule because of these complications? Or is it something more like from the clinical picture of the heart failure type presentation of this patient?
2: Mm, It's probably more the clinical picture. If you've got ST elevation, you can't delay the angiogram. And so if an echocardiogram delayed the angiogram, um, you wouldn't do it.
0: All right, let's recap. Mandy is a 56-year-old female who is presented with symptoms of heart failure as well as chest pain in the context of a recent myocardial infarction two weeks ago that was managed with PCI. Her troponins are elevated, her ECG shows ST segment elevation, but importantly, a point-of-care ultrasound has revealed the diagnosis to be a left ventricular aneurysm complicating this recent myocardial infarction. And she will require transfer to a cardiothoracic unit for management
1: of this, left ventricular aneurysm. Now that we've found Mandy's diagnosis, let's take a quick tangent and talk about post-MI management and observation.
2: So S A A V. so when a patient presents with an acute myocardial infarction, so NSTEMI or STEMI, yeah. by the time they're discharged, they go home on five medications, regular. So S is for statin, and it's high dose statin. So that's yeah. for a 40 milligrams or a torvastatin 80 milligrams. Yeah. A is for aspirin. Um, so when they present, they should have 300 milligrams as a load. And mm. then it's 100 milligrams daily. Yeah. The first A is actually two drugs because you need dual antiplatelet therapy. Mm. So that's ticagrelor or clopidogrel. Mm. Ticagrelor and clopidogrel are the P2Y12 inhibitors which is a sub- subtype of the platelet ADP receptor. So it's dual antiplatelet therapy in addition to the aspirin. The ticagrelor is you give out 180 milligram load and then it's 90 milligrams BD. And the alternative is clopidogrel. So that's a 150 milligram load and then 75 milligrams daily. Ticagrelor is more commonly used because the PLATO study in 2009 showed a mortality benefit of ticagrelor over clopidogrel. And so you'll see that more commonly. The downside is that it's it's a BD medication and it has an idiosyncratic side effect called ticagrelor-induced shortness of breath. It's an adenosine-mediated reaction that affects maybe 15% of patients. And so those who, who get this, you tend to, if it's persistent and disabling, you change to clopidogrel. So that's the A. The other A is an ACE inhibitor or ARB and um, so most commonly perindopril, start at 2.5 milligrams and you up titrate it as high as their blood pressure allow mm. um, so this is another reason for kind of the four-day stay after a STEMI is you can kind of gradually up titrate this and then the B is beta blocker so very commonly metoprolol start at 12.5 milligrams BD and you'll up titrate this as high as the heart rate will allow The higher you get it, the more mortality benefit you get from these drugs. Mm. That's SAB, which is really five drugs. And the sixth drug that they go home on is GTN spray sublingual PRN, if they get chest pain again.
0: One slight correction to what Jimmy said there, which he pointed out to us in the editing phase of the podcast. You'll note he said 150 milligrams of clopidogrel as a loading dose, followed by 75 milligrams daily afterwards. Uh, but this should in fact be a 300 milligram loading dose of clopidogrel with 75 milligrams daily after that. So 300 milligram loading dose.
2: Generally, after a STEMI, the patients stay admitted for roughly four days or early discharge at three days if they're very well. But during this time, you're looking for things, you're looking for complications. So the papillary muscle rupture and the, and the new pancystolic murmur of mitral regurgitation the, the LV free wall rupture, the septal rupture and a VSD, ventricular septal defect, like murmur, or the LV aneurysm. Um, all are pretty uncommon, but you wouldn't want to risk them going home during this period of time. So you'll often see the cardiology reg examine these patients' hearts for new murmurs each day before they're discharged on day four you're looking for this new systolic murmur that could represent one of these things and if you find one they need an echocardiogram. Hmm. Woo. Okay
0: let's come back to the case. So all that remains to be done for Mandy is to arrange her transfer to a major cardiothoracic center where her left ventricular aneurysm can be managed. Unfortunately for us this involves making a potentially scary phone call to an old cardiothoracic surgeon consultant. Uh, I certainly know that I find this to be quite a daunting experience. Let's see what Jimmy can do to help me on my way.
2: When you call, I think it's important to tell them the issue and why you're calling them straight away so that they're immediately oriented. So in this case, if I were to call the cardiothoracic registrar in another hospital, I'd say, Hi, I'm Jimmy, I'm the ED registrar. I'm calling because I have a patient who has a large left ventricular aneurysm and they're unstable two weeks post PCI for a STEMI, an L-O-L-E-D STEMI. And then immediately they're kind of, their ears are pricked up. They're like, okay, we need to do something about this. And then they're ready to take the full referral.
1: Jimmy's alluded to a concept called ERSBAR, which stands for Identity, Request, Situation,
2: background, assessment, and recommendation.
0: We asked Jimmy for some advice about asking for consults.
2: There's also, you can see it from that person taking the, the call side, that there's, there's a, a little element of fear from them as well, because you're about to give them work, and they have that element of fear. Are they going to give me a really difficult task, or are they just going to give me a one minute, you know, phone consult and that'll be done. So if if you're calling a specialty team and you just want a phone consult, if you say you're the final year medical student and you'd like a phone consult, the person on the other end is just gonna relax because they know it's gonna be a couple of minutes, it's gonna be a straightforward question. The final year med student isn't gonna talk back to them. (laughs) 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 And then it'll be be a fearless interaction.
1: (laughs) Nice. Yeah. All right, Christian. What have we learned?
0: Well, I know I personally have learned a nice mnemonic framework device by which I can consider the complications of myocardial infarction. So I can remember that there are electrical, structural, thrombotic, and then weird
1: complications following MI. Mm. I've learned the role of echo in the workup of patients presenting with heart failure signs, namely the structural causes of post-MI complications. Now, I think we've both
0: learned the importance of clear communication with our colleagues when requesting consults in particular thanks to jimmy's excellent recommendation i'll be sure to mention my name level of training and also a specific request every time i start a consult in order to put my colleagues at ease
1: here's to fearless interactions with our colleagues we'll We'll see you next time for another another stat dose of EDU. edu